0: Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 to 3, uh, and then Hebrews 4, uh, 14 to 16. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Uh, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Uh, Then flipping over to uh, Hebrews 4, uh, uh, verses 14 uh, to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.
1: Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 14 through 16. I I want to talk um, about Jesus from these three sentences that we have before us. And the, the very, very best possible outcome of this talk would be if someone here or someone watching online, either now or later, saw in these verses just how wonderful, perfect the Lord Jesus Christ is and started to trust him started to walk with him, follow him, uh, and love him. That would be the the very, very best possible outcome. I think it's particularly relevant, I think, to anybody who might be searching different ways of possibly knowing God and approaching God to see the the distinctiveness of Christianity and the way the Lord Jesus is the perfect, perfect go-between to bring you to God. The equal, very, very best possible outcome would be if there, anybody here who's wavering in their dedication to the Lord Jesus, thinking, "Is it worth it? How? how what, what is it worth the cost to me personally to follow the Lord Jesus Christ?" If anybody in that position were to see afresh from these sentences just how perfect the Lord Jesus is and how worthy he is of our total commitment and dedication and was to come back Uh, that would be equal the very very best possible outcome and in fact that's very close to the original intention of the writing of this whole book of Hebrews to to believers who probably came from a Jewish background and uh, were thinking it might be easier to revert to that sometimes protected religion in the Roman Empire than to be out on a limb as a distinctive Christian and and possibly suffer persecution. Just as good an outcome would be for anybody who is firmly trusting in the Lord Jesus and delighting in following him and serving him, just to be able to say in your own heart and mind, he is a wonderful saviour. Uh, And to to love him and praise him from the depth of your heart. That would be a wonderful, wonderful outcome as well. Um, A few weeks before Christmas, Kate and I went up from Bromley into central London by train. And we did a nearly six-mile walk around some of the best Christmas lights of, of London. And towards the end, we made a very short detour... To Somerset House to watch people ice skating, and we stood on kind of on the outside bari- outside of the barrier from the from the ice rink and watched them. you know some people were just flying around all over the place, Well, uh, not flying but gliding around all over the place. Uh, some people went flying, <laughs> but downwards and ended up sitting down when they, they didn 't intend to, um, and some people just clung on to the, to, the, uh, to the barrier on the ice and hardly moved. And then there were others like us uh, standing on the outside thinking, what would we like to, to have a go? Well, we were rescued by the fact that it was fully booked and also very expensive, so uh, the, the, the decision really wasn't ours to make. Um, but there are perhaps some of us here who are standing on the outside uh, looking in at Christianity. Maybe you, you're, you've known Christianity since you were a baby. Maybe you're a, still a child. Or you're someone who is looking at Christianity and thinking about it, but you're still, you know, you're on the outside looking in. Well, I'd love it if you would come in. And I'm sure the whole church would love it if you came in and said, Yes, I want to follow Jesus. But maybe some of us are struggling, falling often, sitting down too much when we shouldn't be, or clinging to the edge and hardly moving because we're paralyzed by. By fear rather than full of joy in the Lord Jesus. But maybe all of us could ask ourselves this question: If we were slipping and sliding on the ice, what sort of person would you want to be beside you? What sort of person would you want to hold on to on the ice if you weren't very good at it yourself? I've entitled this, uh, this talk, Hold Fast, Draw Near. Hold fast to your faith, draw near to God. And it's based on the two exhortations we find. One in verse 14, which says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Uh, um, not that we say we believe these things, but let's hold firmly to that. Let's, let's not, not go back, let's not give up, and draw near. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. I don't want to concentrate on the reasons why those two exhortations are given and why they are, why they are reasonable to follow and obey. When we're, when we're in trouble, when, when life is hard, when we're facing big challenges or when we fail, Uh, we often tend to think of ourselves and look in on ourselves. And it's very helpful to be able to look outwards. And it's most certainly very, very helpful to look outwards to Jesus, who in time of trouble really, really does and can help. So here's the structure of my talk. Verse 14, who is Jesus and where is he? From verse 15, what Jesus himself experienced and what he's like. And then from verse 16, what Jesus offers to us. So let's get started. Who Jesus is and where he is from verse 14. Um, And the first thing, which is an obvious thing to say, is that he is Jesus. Uh, His name name is is Jesus. Uh, And over the Christmas period, I'm sure we heard Bible readings, including Matthew chapter 1. You will call him Jesus. Jesus because he will save his people from their sins Jesus was his earthly name his human name it is what his parents were told to call him uh, it, it was a popular name in those days it really was the name Joshua Joshua a great hero of Israel's history be a bit like calling a child today I suppose um, Winston or, or Harold or you know, other popular names like Horatio or something like that. Sorry if there are any Horatios here. Great name. Um, didn't choose it for any of my children, but uh, two of them were girls. Um, it was a great, a great name, a popular name. But it means the Lord saves. And he was, to be given, he was given that name as, as a baby boy. It's his earthly human name that was given to him then. His parents were told to call him that. And it it reminds us that when, when, when we become Christians, we are not holding on to just a philosophy. We're not just holding on to a moral code, although, of course, Christianity certainly involves a lot of both of those, but we are holding on to a person. I don't know if you're like me and you, you'd make a, you know, you'd try to apply for something online or to get something online and none of the boxes, you tick a box, none of the boxes quite seem right. Uh, or you phone up a call centre and none of the numbers quite seem to be quite exactly what it is you're asking for. I've learnt the trick, and I'm sure you have as well, just hold on for ages and eventually they give up and say, we'll put you through to a real human being. and Because you, you think, oh, if only I could just talk to somebody. Um, I could explain the situation. Hopefully, then they will be able to point me in the right direction. Well, when when we become a Christian, this is something really very, very precious about Christianity. It is not just a philosophy of life. It's not just a concept. It, it is a person. When we hold on to the faith we profess, we profess faith in a person, in Jesus, a person, a man, a human being like us. And that is very strongly emphasized in this in these sentences here in front of us. Um, But he's he's not just called Jesus, he's also described here as the Son of God. And you might say, well, what did the writer of this letter mean by that phrase, the Son of God? And that's why I asked if we could read the uh, first few verses, or some of the first early verses of the first chapter of the book, because we're told there what this phrase means to the writer the Son of God, because in chapter 1, verse 3, we read this, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in in heaven. That's what the writer means when in our verse he says the Son of God. He means this one who is the bright outshining of the glory of God. Who is the express image of what God is. And who upholds everything. One translation puts it, upholds up the universe. Upholds, sustains everything by his mighty word. And who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what uh, the author means when he in our verse says... Jesus, the Son of God. The man, Jesus, who was born as a baby, grew up as a toddler, grew up as a child, grew through ad, uh, ad, adolescence and teenage years into adulthood. The human being, but he is also the, this radiantly glorious, eternal God who holds everything together. Now, if you want somebody to hold you up on the, on the, um, on the ice, <laughs> you know, couldn't get anybody better than that if you want somebody who can hold you up in life you could not possibly think of someone better than the one who sustains everything by, the, by his mighty word so what sort of a person would you want in that situation well I think on the ice you would want two things you would, you would want somebody you could hold on to somebody real, somebody who's there somebody who's experienced life someone who's friendly someone who's willing to give time to you and help you out but you'd also want somebody who was strong enough to hold you and skillful enough not to fall down on top of you wouldn't you you want those two things well in the lord jesus we already we've seen we have both of those truly human jesus and gloriously divine bright outshining, the glory of God, the radiance of God's glory. And so he is the perfect combination to be this other thing that he's described of in our verse, a great high priest, the one who represents us to God, who stands between us and God. As I've already mentioned, the the first recipients of this this letter, of this book, um, would appear to have been in danger of sliding back into some sort of Judaism Uh, where once a year um, the high high priest would go through the temple courts into the most holy place and make atonement, make purification for sins with the blood of an animal which couldn't actually really do anything. Um, But it was a picture of what Jesus would one day do. There's a lot more about that later on in the book. But the Lord Jesus didn't just go through the model of heaven the temple, the model, go through the courts of the model like their high priest would do. But he actually, well, we're told, where is he? We're told he ascended into heaven. More literally, he passed through the heavens. As their high priest on earth passed through the courts of the temple, Jesus actually passed through the heavens. As their high priest went once a year into the, holiest, the, the holy, most holy place, Jesus is now, having passed through the heavens, is now seated, as we saw from the first chapter, is now seated at the right hand of the majesty of high. He went there and stayed. He is the the perfect high priest. He is there in heaven for us, sitting at the right hand of the throne on high, the majesty on high, in control of all things. Now, before we go on to the next verse, can I just say this? Look, if your version of Jesus, if your mental picture, idea of Jesus, the, the faith that you kind of profess is, is anything other than this, anything other than the way he's described in this, in this of just this one sentence, then you, you, you're in trouble. We need all of what's in this, this sentence to, to be sure and to be secure in our relationship with God. If, if, he's, if he's not divine, then he has no power to rescue you. He has no authority to rescue you. The best he could do is tell you where you're going wrong and tell you what to change. He would have no power to actually save you. And if he's not human, well then how much would he be able to sympathize and understand? How approachable would he be? And if he's not a great high priest, what has he done to take away your sin? This is one of the great distinctives of Christianity. We don't just have someone standing at the side of the ice rink shouting out and telling us how to skate. And telling us off when we do wrong. We have someone who gave up their whole session on the ice just to go around with us. We have, we have someone who actually came to rescue. We don't just have a teacher. We don't just have a guru. We don't just have a prophet. We have a savior. We have someone who has really done all that's necessary to open the door of heaven, the courts of heaven, to us. And he's in there with the door open, waiting to receive us. He is absolutely perfect, absolutely perfect for the job so if you're thinking about it if you're examining other other religions stop here dwell on jesus and trust in him and in him alone and if you do believe him well don't don't give up don't don't, don't just um, don't perhaps like the uh, they did look for something a bit more visible a, a bit more a bit even more tangible no only, only Jesus is the one who, could, who offered a real sacrifice that really takes away sin. Don't go to something that is more, less morally demanding, just a concept or a philosophy that you can bend to your own wishes. But a real person who has real character, who has real standards, and who demands total obedience is worthy of our commitment. So let's move on to the to the next verse then, verse 15. What Jesus experienced and what he is what he is like. What he experienced, well, we're told he has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Here the writer is developing one aspect of Jesus' humanity. His life was was not easy. He was tempted, he was tested, he experienced trials. He went through great hardships. He was was, um, tempted in in all whole wide variety of different ways, just as we are. Perhaps the greatest of all of his testings would be the question of should he go ahead with being crucified for us? Or should he find a way out? And we're told that um, he, he struggled over that. He was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death in anticipation of what was going to happen to him. And he struggled with, with, with the decision should he go ahead with his life's mission and be crucified, kept bearing in his body the sins of his people under the wrath of God? Should he do that? And we're told that he struggled and he his, his sweat, so his sweat was almost like drops of blood. But he, he never sinned never sinned. I wonder what, what percentage of temptation level we give in at. Of course a temptation isn't really a temptation unless it's attractive in some way or another, is it? What level do we give in to temptation? See, if you give in to temptation at 10%, then you never find out what 20% was like, would be like, or 30%, or 50%, or 100%. It's only if you never sin that you actually find out how hard temptation can be. Isn't it? liken it to torture. You know? Any budding James Bonds here? or <coughs> uh, He's one of his many glamorous assistants. Who would, uh, the, first, the first mention of the word temptation, t- torture rather, would say, oh, what do you want to know? You know, I'll grass anybody up. Just don't get any, any further than mentioning the word. You never find out what it would have been like. Give in at the first pang of pain. You never find out how far they would have gone. Only the person who does not give in finds out how hard it could be. And Jesus never gave in. He was tempted like we are, but he never sinned. He knows what it's like far more than we do, actually, doesn't he? He knows what it's like. And in chapter 2 of this letter, the, the writer put it like this. Chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. <clears throat> that word, um, suffered, for those who are interested in the, the language, is written in such a tense that it shows that it wasn't just that he suffered and it's now over and done with and forgotten. There's some pains we go through and you... You know, a while afterwards, when it's where you're when you're feeling better, it's hard to remember how much it hurt, or how ill you felt. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But what we're told here that by the way, the the grammar that's used here shows that he did suffer, and he can still remember it. He did suffer, and he know he still knows what it was like. He suffered intently, intensely. And he can still remember the pain, the struggle, the anguish, the battle. And therefore he is very able to help us when we are tried and tempted, struggle, and when we fail. So what what is he like? Well, we do not have a a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Double negative there. What it means, of course, is we do have a high priest who is able to empathize or sympathize, understand, feel with us, and feel for us in our struggles. He is, he is not like the, 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 the poor boy who was born into utter poverty with no advantages in life, no education, no good connections, but through his own hard work, became a self-made millionaire who now has absolutely no sympathy at all with anybody who complains about their lot in life you know on your bike if i could do it so can you no he is the exact opposite of that here we here we have the prince of heaven the one who for eternity lived in perfect love relationship father son holy spirit Fulfilled, totally self-sufficient, all-glorious, all-powerful, who with a word could do whatever he wished, and indeed with words called the universe into being. The Prince of Heaven, who came to earth specifically in order to help us. Specifically in order to get alongside us, Jesus. Specifically in order to suffer and to die. To bear our sins so that we can be completely purified forever. That's what we have. He is is sympathetic because he came into the world to be sympathetic. He is loving because he came into the world through love and because of love. He is patient because he knew exactly what he was coming into and why he was coming here. He knows that we are weak. You cannot find a better Lord for your life than this. You cannot find a better person to follow. You cannot find another saviour than Jesus. Don't give up on him. Do find him. Do trust him. Do love him. Do praise him. Thirdly, verse 16, what he offers. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We've already seen that God's throne is a throne of majestic power and glory. But it is also, as described here, a throne of grace, where we can receive mercy and find grace. Those two words, mercy and grace, overlap quite a lot, really, and it's a little bit contrived to to try and force an absolute distinction between them. But I think it is helpful to to get the flavor of both words by seeing perhaps a slight difference between them. You could say mercy is when God does not give us what we do deserve. What we, what we do deserve, if we, were to, if we were to draw near to God, is to have him slam the door in our face. That's what we deserve. And far worse than that. To be cast into outer darkness to suffer forever. That's what we deserve. But God in his mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. But grace, on the other hand, we could say, is more the attitude of giving us what we don't deserve. Giving us the, the, the love, the welcome, the help, the strength, the forgiveness, the peace, the eternal life, the relationship that we frankly just don't deserve to have. And as we hold on to the faith we profess, what we say we believe, as we actually hold on to it, we can approach boldly and receive mercy, the mercy he offers and we can find the love and the grace and the abundance for the needs that we experience but we must check out our attitude as we approach God confidently in what sort of confidence should we approach God well it should not be to brag or to boast of ourselves, it shouldn't be that kind of approach to God that that has an attitude, whether it's expressed or not, which is more likely. It wouldn't be expressed, but it could, could be a hidden attitude. Oh, God, um, I, I'm, uh, you know, you know me. You know me. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. I, you know, I go to church. Um, I, I, I try to help other people. I, I I sing the hymns and say the prayers and whatever, whatever you feel you should boast about. I'm, I'm kind and I'm good. I'm in a bit of trouble now, so... Please help me out here. If, you, if, you, if your attitude is at all like that, really you are going in completely the wrong way. Because this is the throne of grace. This is the throne of undeserved gifts and help and strength. And if we go to brag about ourselves or to boast about ourselves, then we are going in totally the wrong way. With totally the wrong attitude. It's the throne of grace and mercy. But neither do we, do we go confidently because we think we can bargain or buy something from God. You know, that sort of attitude that says, God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do this, that for you. I promise I'll change. If, you, if you'll do this for me, if you'll help me in this difficult situation, then I promise I will be a better person from now on. Or, or I'll, 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 you know, I'll see you right. I'll pay you back. To bargain or to brag. No, we, we, that is not the way to approach the throne of grace confidently thinking i you know i can i can make my way in life i can i can pay my own way you know i'm confident about myself no 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 this is the throne of grace undeserved help but neither indeed do we need to come begging pleading with god as if he is unwilling to give because god is rich in mercy His grace is abundant and overflowing. He delights to give. He delights to help. We don't need to beg and plead as if we have to twist His arm to hear us and to welcome us and to help us. But no, we come boldly because we believe that God is gracious And because the Lord Jesus displays that and proves that in his life. We can come boldly, not because we're boasting about ourselves or bragging about ourselves or bargaining or buying something from God. We can come boldly because we believe that God is bountiful in his mercy and in his grace and loves us with with an amazing love that delights to receive us And to help us. And that is so distinctive of Christianity, isn't it? You know, there is no will Jesus help me? There is no will I get to heaven when I die? Will my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? Can I buy my way in? There's none of that. There is a confidence, there is a certainty, there is a boldness because Jesus has done it all for us, He has gone through the heavens. He has made purification for sins. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is sympathetic and kind and understanding and patient. He hasn't changed from the way he was when he was on earth. Same yesterday, today and forever. Let's make sure we approach God in that way. Humbly about ourselves. But boldly. Because of... Jesus. Can I just say a tiny bit about this really interesting word here? Um, Help. Help. It's only used twice in the whole of the New Testament, as far as I can see. One of them is here, obviously. The other one is in a passage in the book of Acts. and I'm going to read this to you now. And Here's a little puzzle for you. As I read this, try to work out which word in this little bit of narrative from the book of Acts is the same word as our word, help. You got it? So you're trying to work out which word here, in Acts chapter 27, verses 15 to 17, which of these words is the same word as the word help in in our passage. It's about a shipwreck. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they, they were afraid they would run out of ground on the sandbars of the Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. Any guesses? Which word? No? Good idea. Good thinking, but no? Are you... Yeah? No, no, okay, good, good try. Somebody, somebody's thinking lifeboat, but you're too, too worried to put your hand up. Driven along? Driven along, no. Should I tell you? Ropes. Ropes. That's the same word. <coughs> what? How can ropes be the same word as help? Well, because it, it was a specific word that was used for when a ship got into big trouble... Creaky wooden boat in a stormy sea, they would put ropes or chains under the hull of the ship to reinforce it, to hold it together, to strengthen it till they could get to, to land. Here they, they ran aground and everybody was saved. Eventually the ship was broken up actually, but uh, not, in, not, not until after the people were rescued. Everybody, everybody got, got to land safely. It is... The, it is something that was put in place when it was needed to reinforce the ship now if you've got a mind like mine you're thinking about a verse from the Old Testament the eternal God is is your refuge or your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms and because Jesus, when he was crucified, held out his arms in death to carry our sin in his body on the cross to make purification for our sins. He can now, when we believe in him and as we approach him boldly on his throne of grace, he can now Reach down and hold us together and keep us going and bring us help in our time of need. So we can approach him, a sympathetic, kind, understanding, experienced man, Jesus, who is also the glorious Son of God, with confidence, saying, "Lord Jesus." I think I'm about to fall apart. Rescue me, please. Can, we can do that with confidence. The car, whether you're in the calm seas of the harbour or in the storms of life, approach God confidently through Jesus Christ and know that he will not slam the door in your face but he will welcome you and lavish his love upon you. And whatever happens, he will hold you fast. I mentioned earlier on that I have uh, three children. I think two of them were frightened of dogs. (laughs) Uh, One in the middle was perhaps rather overconfident. Um, My older older daughter... uh, when we used to walk along the road, she would, she would hold my thumb with her, her little hand. She would hold onto my thumb and um, I would hold onto her wrist, spread, spread my fingers around and grip onto her wrist like that. So she'd be holding my thumb and I'd be holding her, her wrist. Her tiny little hand held my thumb and my great big strong hand held her, her little wrist. And if, a dog, if we got near to a dog, she would grip my thumb tighter. Uh, She would hold fast, fast, hold firmly. And I would grip her wrist tighter as well to reassure her. Now, where was the strength in that? Where was the strength in that grip? Was it in her little hand holding my big thumb? Or was it in my big hand holding her little wrist? We are called upon to hold firmly to the faith that is really the person in whom we trust, isn't it? We need to hold on to him. But the strength of that is not that we are holding him. The strength of it is that he is holding us. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Can we sing that song? Uh, He will hold me fast. And maybe, maybe, wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful if someone here said the very first time, Lord Jesus, hold me. Hold me. I trust that you died for me. Hold me now. Make me yours. Make me safe forever. Wouldn't that be absolutely wonderful? And if, or if there's somebody here who, saying, Lord, I was about to give up on you. I want to hold on. Don't let me go, please. Hold me. Or someone going through a really hard time. Oh Lord, I don't know if I can make it through this week. But I trust you. Please help me. Please hold me. Or if any of the rest of us can say, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you died for me and that you've held me ever since. I praise you.